You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Tanya Pinkins. Welcome back for part two of my thoughtful conversation with Ron Russell on You Can't Say That. Visit me at VPN forward slash you can't say that. I often say about many actors I know that if it weren't for the arts, they would be in the penitentiary. Yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> okay. I should have. <laughs> By all rights. I mean, looking back on it, I have a friend uh, who's a filmmaker and he and I, when we have when we have a beer together, we start to talk about the worst thing we did. This is one of our fun. Well, you got to tell us so, what is the worst well, I don't thing think you, you did. Know yeah, I do. I want to know the worst. I think the very thing worst did. thing I ever did. When I think back on it, was actually that I was driving back in the old days, Louisiana, to get from Southern Louisiana to Northern Louisiana. There was no interstate. There was just this one. There was just this one um, uh, road. The one, I think it's actually what it was, Highway 1, um, that ran basically from uh, Opelousas, which is down south near near Lafayette, all the way up to Shreveport. Mm-hmm. And it kind of just bisects the state. There was no interstate. <clears throat> they built the interstate after I left high school. <clears throat> so whenever we would go down to Baton Rouge or New Orleans on our breaks from school, because we were up at this boarding school, when we drive back, we would drive on this extremely, as you can imagine, very crowded road between two major cities uh, with, you know, the assortment of what you'd expect to see on an interstate. Trucks, but also, you know, 18-wheelers, but also uh, people hauling boats and, you know, then people in little tiny cars and, you know, just really dangerous road. Very, very dangerous. Okay, so this is a driving thing is the worst thing you did? Okay, come on. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> this, I think this is probably the worst one. Okay. So, I was driving... Three fellow students, well, two fellow students and one, one, uh, one's little sister. Um, Doug, my best friend, and I liked to race to school to see who could get there first on this road. I had a Volvo. He had a Toyota. And uh, my Volvo had a T-top that you could open. Right? Okay. So I got extremely drunk and extremely high, um, just blasted out of my mind, and decided that there was no way Doug Doug had beaten me several times in a row, so I was going to win this time. So I just started driving like a maniac, you know, 110, 120 miles an hour, something like that, mostly driving in the wrong lane. This is just a two-lane highway, two-lane highway. Okay. With all these people in the back. Okay. And are they screaming for you to stop? Oh, yeah. And then I decided that what would be really cool would be for me to actually have my friend in the, in the seat put his foot on the accelerator while I sat on top of the car and steered with my feet. So I sat on a car going 125 miles an hour, steering with my feet, passing trucks in and out of traffic 
while my friend, hysterically laughing, high as a kite, had his foot on the accelerator going as fast as we could. And these three uh, young people in the back were just screaming bloody murder because they were going to die. I mean, I don't, I have no idea how we survived, actually. I don't literally remember it. I some, <laughs> At some point, we stopped doing that, but I don't remember getting back in the car. Wow, you had some angels watching so, out for you. Right, I guess. But, uh, but my point is that that's kind of like putting people in danger was something that I did every day. I just put people in danger. I put myself in danger. I put my family in danger. You know what I mean? Like, really, like literal existential danger. Yeah. Now, I just, I want to hold for a second because I just came back from Topeka, Kansas, where I went to the Evil Knievel Museum. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> Evil Knievel was like that as a kid. Like, he burnt up his grandparents' barn because yeah. he was doing some tricks to make some money. Right. And you're like, was he a, you know, a delinquent or was he this crazy creative artist? I mean, history says he was an artist, but do people even get a chance to do those kind of things now? Can we, could we even have another evil Knievel now? Because the first time the kid did that, they're going to jail. Yeah. They destroyed true. some property. They're going to jail. Well, know? not if they're white. Though. Well, you you don't know. I mean, if they're poor and white, they're going if to jail. If you're poor and white, but I'm saying if you white, have they're going to jail. some level of privilege, you're going to get out of it. That's what I mean about getting out of it. And that's, that's the only reason that I feel when I talk to, uh, when I talk to my students about, about and your students what, are. Tell us who your students are. Yeah, Where do you run your program? We work with several high schools uh, throughout the city, uh, mostly up in the Bronx and in Harlem. Um, all of the students are, We all of our programs start with a compulsory program, meaning they're the whole ninth grade and the whole 10th grade participates okay. at our partner school. So every student in the school participates. Those that want, uh, many, you know, have never done any kind of art before and those that want further opportunities then agree you know they come after school then they sign up to be part of our remix program or part of epic next which was actually just featured in uh, just heard on a phone call it was in the times the times has a new hulu thing uh and apparently we're featured in that this weekend so congratulations I, I that's kind of awesome but you yeah. got to tell us more detail about your program yeah the program is a uh it starts in english and history classes and it's a program that looks at things like genocide for instance through the lens of playwriting. So um, we do, we have the students do a lot of research in their history classes about Vietnam, about uh, Cambodia, about Iraq Kurds, about uh, Rwanda, and uh, take a look at first person accounts of the genocide. How did it happen? What were the results of it? What did America do uh, or not do or cause in the case of Cambodia? Um, and then um, they work with playwrights to and actors to write plays about this, uh, these issues, from from a more of a first person perspective. And try to, it's really about empathy and about being courageous and about literacy, but through the lens of trying to look at history. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So then those students, we do those programs for about twenty weeks in the ninth grade, tenth grade at the school Bushwaka, which I mentioned. Uh, we're actually in every grade. I work with those kids all the way through twelfth grade. So every year for four years. So uh, those that that choose to do the after school work, you know, thirty to, to sixty at each one of these schools that we work at, we have four major partner schools right now. Um, what are the four schools? Uh, Bronx Lab, Urban Assembly uh, School for the Performing Arts, the um, Bishwaka, the Bronx High School for Writing and Communication Arts. And uh, there's two other schools that are sort of co-partners on the Evander Childs campus. That's uh, where I've been. I've come Bronx. to Evander Childs exactly. before. Exactly. So we do a lot of work at that campus, uh, which has six small schools on it. In fact, uh, the Hexer Foundation right now is helping us try to build out a program where we serve the entire campus. 
Okay. Yeah, all all twenty four hundred students. And I've seen work. the work. The students' writing is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's incredible. I mean, very happy with the quality of the work that comes out, especially because, as I said, these programs are not self selected. I really think that I think that the arts um, get really should be compulsory in high schools. I mean, this isn't a radical thought, but it's just not done in New York. But there, I really feel like. The loss of the arts is a deep loss for students' education. Forget about their humanity, which is a whole other topic, but it really for their education. I think most students learn better when they're asked to have the kind of um, autonomy that comes from arts projects and the kind of like self-directed learning that comes from arts projects and the sense of creativity and that their voice matters. I think they just learn better. And so... Um, so we, we want to make sure that that gets done with all of the students. Now, I don't think that every student is going to want to self-select to do a five-month project like the Remix, which is three days a week after school where students take a classical play and transform it into something that they think will serve their community. Um, that's just not for everybody. You know is what that I mean? sort of like Brian Dory's? Were you sort of inspired by Brian Dory's, or are you all working separately and great minds thinking alike? Brian, Brian and I know each other, but we were working separately, definitely. Okay. Um, yeah, the Remix was something that actually Melissa, uh, our co-artistic director uh, at Epic, pioneered. Um, at a school, it was a school um, called Chelsea High School that actually came up with the concept of it. An assistant principal there was saying that um, the students really needed to see Shakespeare through a slightly different lens, but he, he didn't want to lose the language. He didn't feel that there was a, any value in changing Shakespeare's language to make it more accessible. It was really more about trying to figure out some way to recontextualize the Shakespeare. So they started taking these plays and having the students rethink how they function, that can include a lot of different things. It can be about adding characters. It can be about changing context. We do a thing often where there's sort of side-by-side -side things happening, measure for measure, that Melissa just directed had uh, the original text, and then alongside it was a new text written by the students that took place in a recording studio where the producer was sexually harassing these young women who mm. were coming in. Mm. Um, for uh, to work, and so it it kind of became this. It the two pieces reflected off each other. Right now, we're working on it. Looks like we're going to do much to my. I'm a little scared. I'm, I'm biting my nails. The students are probably going to choose to do the Merchant of Venice up in uh, Bronx High School for Writing on the Evander campus this year, and uh, they're going to. They they have been talking about it through the lens of an immigrant experience in America, possibly. Mm. They had originally said Mexican, but it's not really germane to their community. So they're thinking about a Dominican uh, man who is not a citizen, mm -hmm. um, but has been here for 45 years and has raised a family here and has and is a contractor and has a certain amount of, um, you know, a belief that he has a place in, in mm -hmm. the world. Yes. But a uh, white man and he come run afoul. And this, this white guy basically calls out his lack of citizenship and gets him arrested by ICE. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? That kind of thing that they're playing right. around with. And it's kind of interesting. It's because it's a deep question as to whether or not – the question that we were dealing with yesterday when we were working is, are we still going to call him a Jew? Mm. Does that I, make sense? I, like it's an interesting theatrical does, question. Like, like, like does, yeah. it, does Jew only – have a meaning in context of Judaism? Right. I'm asking. I don't know. I've not I don't done the research yeah, to find I mean, out if that is the only thing, or can we use it to mean the other? I you know, think because kind of in Merchant of Venice, it is the other. other. Yeah. <clears throat> it well, is the other. Notable, the students were saying yesterday how much they noticed in the big courtroom scene that no one calls him Shylock. Uh, everyone calls him Jew or the Jew. Mm. It began to feel like if you notice that and you feature that, it feels like it doesn't really have anything to do with religion. 
Mm-hmm. It has to do with the the label that he's carrying. And I mean, I have certainly heard uh, people use Jewing someone to mean gouging them. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? In a way right. that has nothing to do with someone's religion. Right. Um, or playing a Jew or, uh, or in hip hop, or especially, uh, in the sort of biggie era, the lawyers were always referred to as Jews, mm. whether or not they were Jewish. Okay. I'm gonna get my Jew on that. Okay. Do you know what I mean? So, so I, I think, I think generally speaking, it could, I mean, I think it's an interesting question that the students, these are, you know, 15, 16 year olds are struggling with is when you're, I mean, not to get too deep into it, but um, I mentioned Ibram Kendi, who's my favorite writer that I'm reading right now, um, just published a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And we were using this book, uh, the students and I were using this book to talk about institutional racism as it pertains to um, as it pertains to The Merchant of Venice and trying to get a sense of whether or not Shakespeare is writing an anti-Semitic play or whether he is trying to write a play that um, deals with something completely different but uses that prejudice at the center, mm-hmm. that it, which is not not that interesting a question in and of itself to me. I don't really care who Shakespeare was, strictly speaking. Do you know what I mean? He's mm-hmm. been dead a long time. So, she's um, been dead a long time. <laughs> she's been dead a long time. Um, so, um, so that's not too interesting to me. But what is in- interesting is in today's world, if you're going to do a play – in which someone's, uh, in which there is the kind of uh, racism that is happening in that play, and there isn't an anti-racist perspective in the play. There's mm-hmm. not somebody who's saying, "Hey, stop, stop assuming that because he's Jewish, that that means he wants money." He says that, but he's a fraught character. He's not a good man, right? So, and any production that tries to make him good kind of I think of if I had to play him, I'd so. be trying to make him good. I mean, really? I might would do you? all the... Well, because I would just be interested in finding the humanity in anyone. That's just my the humanity. As an Absolutely. Artist. I want to Absolutely. find the humanity in the in the character. I think what's cool about his humanity is that he's been violated and his human openly and spit on, and his humanity expresses itself in how angry he is about that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, he's absolutely right to be angry, and he's aware of his anger, and he he covets it, kind of. Mm-hmm. Holds on to it. Mm-hmm. Makes this deal with Antonio in hoping that Antonio screws up. Mm. Does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. he's praying for Antonio to fuck this up so he can do what he needs to do with him. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I don't think that's necessarily uh, evil. I just think there's a, a cruelty in him that has been, you know, uh, either, you know, he comes by it honestly, he's born with it, or perhaps it's been like carved into him by this society over 50 years. So but why do you do this work? I mean, you do all this work with students. You <laughs> produce plays professionally. Do you have any time left in the day to be married? You got a daughter you're raising? Like, no, why we, do you do, uh, what, what, how did you get to this work that well, you do? Well, I think that for me, um, very early on when I was in college, um, <clears throat> I started, you know, I wasn't in theater when I was a kid. My, my mom uh, did props for the community theater. And so I spent a lot of time at the theater, but I did a little acting in the way that you do, but it really wasn't something that I, that I was concerned about or interested in. Um, I certainly didn't think I would pursue it. And so uh, when I was in college and I was a neuroscience major, I was working, uh, just volunteering, uh, which is sort of expected of you if you go to Oberlin College, that you do some volunteering in the local area. I was volunteering at El Centro de Servicios Sociales uh, in Lorain, Ohio, deeply segregated town. I mean, really literally there is a steel mill that runs in between the two halves of town, one of which is uh, white people and the other which is brown people. And so uh, the, the segregation is quite like <laughs> strikingly obvious. 
Um, and so we were working there and we got a little bit of money to do a program that was more than what we had been doing, which was really just like scraping paint off of, you know, sides of buildings, um, and having the kids kind of clean up their community. But we got a little money to do a program and they asked me to do a theater program because they knew that I'd done a little bit of acting and I really didn't know what to do. So I started, I went, I was, happened to be in New York. I went to drama bookshop and asked them what to do because I figured those guys at Drama Bookshop like know everything. So I was like, so I've got to do this theater program with these kids. What should I do? And they're like, oh, well, here's a book. And they gave me Augusto Boal's book, um, Games for Actors and Non-Actors. And it really kind of changed my view of the importance of youth voice. Um, that's really what it comes down to. I think I, I do theater because I think it's the, the quickest, uh, most effective, most powerful vehicle for bringing youth voice into our society. Um, but I, I, I think that what's happened in, in this country for me is that we have really infantilized our adults and shut up our children. Mm. Um, it's like it's almost as if like the adults don't want to grow up. And, mm. it, and the rem constant reminder that there are people that are younger than them really bothers them. So they've just shut that down. Mm. And, and young people are not given any kind of a voice. I don't remember when I was growing up having any kind of a voice either. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's new, but you know what I mean? But like, it's, I just, it, I'm just hyper aware of it in New York city, especially, um, that, that, that we constantly seek to find solutions to our problems by dealing with old people who caused the problems in the first place or participate in the process <laughs> in the first place. You know what I mean? Instead of actually going to the youth and saying, what should we do about this? How do we fix it? Right, because it's going to be your world. I tell, my, your world. I tell exactly. my students at NYU, my time is done. You are making the world. We have not done a good job. Do it any way you want to do it. Invent some new way to do this world because exactly. we were not planning for you when we did what we were no, doing. definitely not. Definitely not. And that may just be the nature of things. I don't know. Maybe that's not something that you can fix. Maybe people just do make their world for themselves and they don't think about the next generation. There's no way to get that in there. But uh, again, if that is true, better that the kids who are 15, 16 years old understand that they got to be getting ready to take over. Does that make sense? Even yeah, if, we're, if, we, if we even never give them any power, at least they know what they're inheriting. Right. Right. Do you right, know what I mean? Right. So you're you're not, preparing them to be able to take over. Yeah. So no, they're not waiting I, until I, they're 24 to go, oh, shit. <laughs> do you know no, what I mean? I, mean, I, I think I do that with so. my students all the time. I like, I am, I, yesterday we had advisement and I was saying to my students, I am empowering you to say no. Right. I am empowering you that if it's a choice between someone at, someone's happiness and yours, that you choose yourself mm. all the time. Yeah. You know, yeah. I said, and, and, it, and you're at that point in your life where you've been living in someone else's house on someone else's dime. You, you were someone's property, essentially. And yeah. now you've got to grow up and learn how to, to live in a totally different way. Do it right now while you've got a little more time of that. You know, if yeah. you still have parents supporting you, you got to learn a whole new set of skills. Mm. Start practicing them right now. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I, and I think... That the other thing that, you know, we hear all the time, I know Melissa would say this if she was here too, um, she, we hear all the time people saying to us, it's so great what you do. Like as if we're like doing some great white savior service <laughs> to the world. In case it's not clear, most of the students we work with are black and brown. I think we've had one white student in 15 years. So um, he was an exchange student from Kiev who never went home. So, um, so uh yeah, I don't even know. I, he was such a strange student that I almost don't think of him <laughs> in that way. So anyway, um, we uh, working with those students. Um, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, well, I'm going to say something while you're finding your train okay, of thought. Sure. I want to make sure you I know you have someone you have to be, which is soon. Yeah. Oh. Um, 
I'm going to say this statistic. So Scholastics Books, which is the number one publisher in the country, has been polling high school students over the last 58 years of presidential elections about who they think will be the next president. Mm. And the high school students have accurately predicted the next president every time. Really? Every time they've surveyed them. Wow. So whatever we want to think about high school students, they clearly are they aware the of the thing. world that they're in mm. and know what's going on. Yeah. I caught my train of thought back, um, which was <clears throat> that – so a lot of times people are like, well, it's just so great what you do. It's it's so nice that you do that or – you know what I mean? Like that's that kind of thing. You're and being benevolent. You're being benevolent. And I always think – it's so funny. It reminds me of – it always reminds me of um, – Kafka's story that I love called A Hunger Artist. Do you know that story? Yes. About the guy. But tell who everybody lived. who doesn't know well, it. Well, the guy is a hunger artist uh, in the late 1800s. He starves himself um, and he's great at it. He can starve himself for, I don't know, 90 days or some such like that. And it's like a attraction. People bring their families and they watch him starve. And then, you know, at, right at the moment of the 90th day or whatever, he finally eats a cracker. You know what I mean? It's like this big thing. But times change. He's not that popular anymore. People are more into lions and, you know, like zoos. And so he gets – and he's in a cage like an animal. Like that's kind of how he does right. his thing. So they he's in his cage and he's doing his biggest one yet. He's really excited about it. But no one cares. And the zookeepers in the menagerie that he's in accidentally sort of put him behind the elephants or whatever. Do you know what I mean? And they leave him there. And he's – he wins. He like he goes like 130 days or what? I don't even know what it is. He goes forever, and he's dying now when oh. they find him. And they, he's like just a little piece of straw himself in the mm. straw. But the guy finds him, and it's kind of like, what the hell are you doing here? You know? And he's like, I'm I'm the hunger artist. You know what I mean? And he says, um, the guy says, well, obviously you're going to die. Let me call someone to to help you out here. There's no way to save you now. And he's he's sort of like. Can I tell you a secret? You barely hear him. Can I tell you a secret? He's like, everyone always admired me, but the truth is, I just never could find any kind of food that I liked. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just such a great ironic <laughs> twist on this idea of like why he does that. And I think it's, for me, it's, it's similar in that the reason that I work with these young people is that I love being around them. Mm. I mean, honestly, like they're incredibly smart. They bring such a different perspective than I grew up with when I was their age. They're just kind, good human beings, and they kind of give me hope for the future. Do you know what I mean? In a way that, honestly, I am I have worked with young people um, who have some privilege um, in in schools as a teacher, in community centers, things like that, and, and it's fine. I like being an educator, but what I like more is being around these young people who I know, if given the shot, would really change the world for the better. Do you know what I mean? And like, it's an honor to to serve them. Um, it's not some kind of like, you know, uh, white savior thing where you're like, all right, well, I'm bringing the resources and I'm going to help them. I learn from them every day. I mean, really, like that's the truth. I, I walk out of those sessions that I have with them, like this one on Merchant of Venice, thinking a new way from the way that they're asking the questions about the play Merchant of Venice. Do you know what I mean? So that I'm I going, do. okay, well, let me rethink that a little bit. Let me rethink this play a little bit. Maybe this play is something that's very important for us to take a look at in our society today. You know, it, 
though I had formerly dismissed it as like I'm going to do a play about some anti-Semitic. You know what I mean? Like I have to see that shit every day. <laughs> you know what I mean? That Antonio, that this, you know, white D-bag who, who has everything and spits on Jews because they charge interest. Do you know what I mean? Like who cares? You know what I mean? But now I'm looking at it and I'm like, no, that's that actually maybe is the play for our time, at least for this group of people. Well, thank you, Ron Russell. Ron Russell. I was going to call you somebody else. Thank you, Ron Russell, for um, coming and talking with me today about uh, Epic Next and all of your work with the students. And I am happy to know you because I always love the work you do. And I'm happy when you invite me to come in. Appreciate it. I I truly admire you. Thank you, Ron. Thanks for listening to You Can't Say That with Tanya Pinkins, part of the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode was produced by Dory Berenstein, edited by Alan Seals, with music by Anthony Norman. You can find more information and other great Broadway-related podcasts via broadwaypodcastnetwork.com slash you can't say that. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.